Good morning, everybody. They say never work with animals or dogs. <laughs> May the best man win. Uh, as I say, good morning. And welcome, everybody. You're all very, very welcome to this morning's uh, service. Sarah, our minister, is away this week on one of her jamborees with a couple of other members of the congregation. And so I, Harold, am taking the service. Most of you know me, but for those of you who don't, I'm normally um, over there singing with the choir. Uh, middle of February, funny month. I, th I thought winter was still with us, but suddenly today it's gone quite springy. The daffodils certainly seem to think it's spring, uh, but I, up north it's, it's freezing cold. So Anyway, we're here, and uh, although spring is still not with us, um, there is the prospect of brighter things to come. Here we are together for a short time, acknowledging our need to reflect a while. We come into this sacred space to pause for a moment, comforted perhaps by a familiar ritual, the smile of a friendly face, sharing a welcome exchange. There will have been things we got right this week, so let's bless the circumstances that led to that success. There will have been times, maybe, when we fell short of our intentions. Whatever the case, know that here, at least, we can surrender for a moment our yearnings and regrets, aware of the oceans of light and dark that surround us, but safe in each other's hands. Let the flame from the candle be the focus of our journey this morning. Its light is the creative light that burns within each of us, a symbol of hope for our future. And now time of prayer and reflection. Divine Spirit, which some call God, may we come to know the inner workings of our hearts. As we reflect on the contradictions that make up the human spirit, may we deal with ourselves and others with kindness and compassion. Faced with the notion of our smallness and the ephemeral life on earth, may we recognize that there is something eternal and infinite in which our existence, indeed all existence, is grounded. This experience fills us with a sense of both the reverence and responsibility which gives our lives a meaning and power which they did not possess in themselves. Let our religion be a respect for others, a growing awareness of the rhythms and mystery of relationships, for our essential unity amidst the diversity of human experience. Let the creation of meaning be our goal. And if at times we despair, if we see only darkness, remember that it is the light behind which defines its opposite. Amen.
And now the first of today's uh, readings. Um, it's entitled, Why Read Literature? And it's by a professor from uh, South Korea, from Seoul University. And it begins with a quote. The best way to think about reality, I had decided, was to get away as far as possible from it. Steve Justice says, in a world constantly concerned with economic instability and the importance of employability, the above quote from the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, a novel by Japanese author Haruki Murakami, is at odds with the masses. Reality has become all too important. Studying is a means to an end rather than an effort to improve the mind or enlighten the soul. Time spent studying the humanities is a waste when students could be harnessing a narrowly defined vocational skill. I ask my students why they are here to study. This is something I see firsthand at my university. On the opening day of my literature classes, I ask my students why they are here. To improve our English and therefore enhance our chances of getting a job, they answer uniformly. I am the only member of faculty in my department who teaches literature where all my student, students major in accounting. But really, I press them, what is the point of an accounting major studying literature? The real world looms large for these students in their final year of university. They need to get a job and they know it won't come easy in today's market. I even question myself sometimes, how will studying literature help them? Well, literature teaches us to ask questions. Dystopian classics such as 1984 by George Orwell and Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury force readers to consider issues that are relevant to the lives they live, but have perhaps never thought of before. Graduates are often ejected into a world they do not fully understand and, not and are not prepared for, much as Winston discovered when he went in search of the truth in 1984. For years, students have been told that getting a degree is the only path to a good job, but more and more these days, just having a degree is not enough. Students need to be able to comprehend the issues that face them, to be able to analyse them in depth and see what is really happening, as opposed to blindly following what they are told is good for them. Too few people are concerned with the big picture. Bradbury makes the point very well in his novel. If you don't want a man unhappy politically, don't give him two sides to a question to worry him. Give him one. Better yet, give him none. Murakami has it right. All too often we become absorbed in our, lives to, in our own lives to consider the situation on a larger stage. The further we get from the everyday routine that binds us, the more we can see. Fiction is an escape into other worlds, other realities, potential dystopian futures or completely foreign lands. The more literature we read, the more of life and our cultures we can understand. This mortal coil ties us to one place at a time, one life with one purpose, to survive. Literature unravels us into distant places, ancient times, 
other peoples and their different ways of speaking and writing. Literature begs us to analyse, to compare and more importantly to question, to always be asking questions. If you do not ask questions when the firemen start making fires, then you cannot complain when there are no more books. This is the attitude that everyone should be taking into their own personal reality. Question the politicians and people in power, or they will be free to do whatever they want. Analyse what they say, be it about the war in Iraq or the war in Oceania. If the world is getting worse, and we can be fairly certain that it is, I hope it will be some of my non-literature major students who are the first to ask why and how we can fix it, rather than blindly working through their balance sheets before sharing cups of victory gin. The second reading. I've chosen this extract from As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 1, because it illustrates one of the qualities in Shakespeare, which is to shine a fresh light on experience and teach us new and, in this case, positive ways of looking at things. In this passage, the exiled duke, banished from court, attempts to make the best of a bad situation. Now, my co-mates and brothers in exile, hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we not the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, this is no flattery. These are counsellors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this, our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. I would not change it. Quite optimistic. His duke responds, Happy is your grace that can translate the stubbornness of fortune in so quiet and so sweet a style. With Shakespeare, you never quite know which side of the fence he's lying on. <clears throat> well, as you know, this morning's theme is all about the value of art, literature, art in general, which helps define us on our spiritual journey. And I thought it would be interesting to look at the equation from the viewpoint of an artist, a writer. This is part of an article by Sarah Bean making her case for how we assign meaning to the world in the form of the arts. She is the poet who uses collage in her creations. She makes the distinction between religion, which can give us meaning, but is rather a journey and not 
a creative invention and the arts in general. So she begins. How do we assign meaning to the world through invention in the arts? First, we must observe the world as it is. See it, question it, experience it. We must take an active rather than a passive role in the observation of the world and how it works. We must study it with all our capacities. We must be tuned in to the best of our abilities. But this is not enough. The artist must do so much more than understand the world. That is what separates her from the philosopher. What is required next is the great leap, the step that will separate the artist from her peers, from the craftsmen who dabble in the arts, from the academicians and the scientists. The next step is to hunt within ourselves, to discover and clearly define what it is that we value. What is it that we need to find in the world so that we may agree to live in it? Why, truth, of course. But what does our own experience lead us to know as the truth? Beauty, of course. But what does our soul deep within us and uniquely our own see as beauty? What makes us tremble? What makes us sure? These are the questions we must tease out of ourselves. These essential concepts in the world that we value are the only concepts that are worth creating art from. These are the values that our experiences in life have built our identities from. These are the values that make the individuals that we are, and we must look very deeply into ourselves to discover them. We must live richly to provide the opportunity to discover more of the values. I don't believe that you can invent your values. I think you must discover them in the depths of who you are. And this process is one in which, as an artist, you are constantly involved for the entirety of your career. <coughs> when we create, we are making a decision to raise something out of the chaos of the world, breathe life and so also meaning into it, claiming it as our own and giving it a name so that we ourselves will not forget it and so that others will know it. Why do we do this? I believe that we invent out of an act of metaphysical rebellion. Now, by rebellion, I'm not talking about a proletarian rebellion or a revolutionary rebellion. I am talking about a rebellion that claims that there is something I have discovered that has great value, something that I refuse to live without, and I rebel against a world in which this value is disregarded, disrespected, or invisible. It is a rebellion that claims something as being essential, as vital, in fact. And so, the artist rebels against the world as it is, and creates out of her defiance her own world, which explicitly includes this value. An example of this is freedom.
We live in a world where we are unfree, some of us more than others, but all of us are unfree in one regard or another. The only way to deal with the lack of freedom we find in the world is to rebel against it and make creations that express our freedom as vehemently, clearly and profoundly as we understand it. We create freely. And this is an act of rebellion against the laws of the world as it is. Albert Camus writes, Revolt stems first of all from the heart, but a time comes when it passes to the spirit, where feeling becomes idea, where spontaneous fervour leads to direct action. This is the moment of rebellion. This is an important idea. Revolt begins in our hearts when we discover in ourselves the things that we value. But for the artist to be successful, that revolt traces its way from the heart into the mind. The work of art must be inspired by our hearts, but executed with our minds. The arts exist so that we can reinvent the world, make it as it must be, in order that we may agree to live in it. We wrest the keys from God and freely invent another world, an unreal but solid world, as it should be. We try to invent heaven with our creations. When a question isn't clear, we invent clarity. When the ugliness of suffering is hidden, we bring it into light. When beauty and dreams are muffled by the laws of physics, we set those laws ablaze, unbind the dreams and the beauty, and make them profound and permanent. Strong words. I'm going to read a sonnet now by Shakespeare. This is my handy pocket. Shakespeare. My little red book. I have to say, normally it, it's in my loo, which you might find rather strange. But people go in there and have a little contemplate and uh, come out saying, oh, I found something rather interesting. So, in this poem, Shakespeare is grappling with the notion of our mortality and the decay of love and beauty. The miracle of the poem is that nine-tenths of it lay bare the truth of the inexorable march of time. And only in the final lines does the poet record the fragile hope that it can stand as a poem as a memorial against time. So, the poem sets us a challenge. Is beauty transient? Does time cheat us of all we had prized? Should we think on the passing of time? And does it make us appreciate the things more if we do? Now, a certain Jane Ann Phillips believes that literature can teach us how to live before we live and to die before we die. I believe, she says, that writing is a practice for death and for every other transformation human beings encounter. 
It is then a preparation of the soul and an initiation into the mysteries that make up our lives. After the poem, there will be a period of silent meditation when you may think on whatever you will. I recently spent an hour in the company of Quakers. Now, don't worry, I'm not giving you an hour. Amazingly, the time sped by in shared silence, and it proved a very valuable and new experience for me. Quakers believe that you should trust in the inspiration of the moment. So be it. And after a few minutes, after I've finished the poem, there will be a short period of silence, a few minutes, and then the choir will mark the end of the silence uh, with a piece of music. Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end each changing place with that which goes before. In sequent toil, all forwards do contend. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, wherewith being crowned, crooked eclipses gainst his glory fight. And time that gave doth now his gift confound. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, and delves the parallels in beauty's brow, feeds on the rarities of nature's truth, and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. And yet, to times in hope, my verse shall stand, praising thy worth, despite his cruel hand.
The germ of today's address was planted sometime late last year, born of a chance encounter at a friend's house. The husband had started writing poetry, a medium which provided him the structure that he needed to express what was bubbling up inside him. And it set me thinking how art in general can provide us with a way of expressing the seemingly inexpressible. It gives us an external frame on which to hang our thoughts and emotions, to paint in tangible, audible, visible form the unseen world that lies within us. Art allows us to wrestle with our angels and demons to rehearse those inner preoccupations and hopefully make sense of them. By expressing ourselves in whatever way we may choose, we come to understand ourselves the better by a process of reflection that gives shape and form to the innermost workings of the soul. This act of reflection is, I think, therapeutic. Artistic expression exposes the soft underbelly of our personal dilemmas, traumas, longings, desires, call them what you will. And if we are not able personally to give shape to these inner workings, we may turn to the work of those who are able to deliver them up. They may even be the catalyst for our own efforts. Now, I can't paint or mould clay or build landscapes with words. My voice is the medium by which I express my inner world. And the starting point is someone else's words and music. By getting under the skin of the composer as far as is humanly possible, by entering their sound world, I emerge eventually, hopefully, with a better understanding of what moves them and along the way I draw inspiration from inside myself. So it's a hopefully happy marriage where I try to serve art and in the process enrich my own sensibilities. It can be an exhilarating process, sometimes fraught with complications and sometimes it goes better than others, as Peter will no doubt tell you. In order to get it right requires deep thought, commitment, a solid technique, a heady mix of spontaneity and anticipation, constant focus. When it goes right, it's the most thrilling thing in the world. You feel you're connecting with something greater than yourself and all the petty concerns of daily life melt away. Past and present merge into something new. As I said, it doesn't always happen, but when it does, it's a really rewarding thing. A therapist friend of mine compared the process of analysis to just such an experience. Both attempt to achieve a fusion, a balance of the inner and outer space. And the only way of achieving that potential marriage is by engaging with the world that lies outside us, and art is the bridge between the two.
an active and reactive engagement. Art is about nothing less than human life. Every poem, play, painting deals with some aspect of human experience. Literature, drama presents human experience and Shakespeare was a master at revealing the complexities of human nature. Great art doesn't discuss, it shows, it doesn't tell. True art is not didactive, though it may be instructive. It appeals to our senses and to our feelings as well as to our minds. Unlike philosophy, which deals with life in a theoretical way, it exposes life in a concrete way. Charles Dickens deals with the concept of utilitarianism in hard times through a story. So we end up understanding not only with our minds, but also to see and hear the problems with our senses and feel them with our hearts as well. Literature then reflects life, but it also interprets it. It focuses it. The writer or poet or filmmaker simplifies experience, yet at the same time he clarifies and deepens it. In other words, he tries to make sense of life. He reflects on the meaning of life. Literature, literature asks the big questions. Where have we come from? Where are we going? And what is the meaning of our existence? Not only does it ask these questions, but also provides us with a variety of possible answers. It has been said that journalism tells you what happened yesterday, whereas literature tells you what always happens. And the same goes for all artistic expression. For me, this is the essence of the spiritual journey we each of us need to make if we are to lead a full life, the good life that the philosophers speculate on. Art helps us on that journey. By the beauty of form, married to the truth of the content, we are led towards enlightenment. So literature, by appealing to our senses, can help wake up our senses. It can help us to really look at and see the things around us. In the passage from As You Like It, a man learns to make the best of his condition and fashion something positive out of adversity. Art illumines. I wonder how many of you here only saw the effect of sunlight on water after seeing a Hockney painting, or saw nature with different eyes after viewing a landscape by Monet. Literature can help us to savour experience, to take in and reflect on and appreciate the things around us. Since literature can appeal to our senses, it can enrich our emotional life. Lyric poetry celebrates such subjects as love and friendship. But also literature helps us at low points in our life, 
when we experience feelings of separation and death. The Psalms and the Song of Solomon are good examples of this. Because literature interprets, simplifies and focuses our experience, it helps us to realise what is most important, most basic in that experience. In literature, these most basic aspects we can call literary archetypes. Shakespeare shows us them all. The young lover, the warrior, the jealous husband, the ambitious soldier, the foolish knight, the vain, the proud, the noble-hearted, the greedy, the old, and what's more, he never, ever judges his creations. He paints us as we are, not as we should be, and thereby lies his genius. He reveals us warts and all. His range is astonishing. Consider Hamlet, who is petrified of acting to avenge his father's untimely death. He teaches us the notion of what we do in the, uh, that what we do in the world can drag us into a spiral of consequences which paralyse our rational faculties. Macbeth, whose vaunting ambition sucks him into a vortex of nightmarish proportions. Richard II, who eventually comes to understand the ephemeral nature of power and the fragility of human identity. In Othello, Shakespeare teaches us to beware of what the philosophers call the other, who can manipulate our minds and subvert our integrity. He teaches us that we are all flawed, neither wholly good nor wholly bad. And let's not forget his sense of humour. When characters reveal their darkest intentions, there is always the welcome belly laugh to remind us that without the ability to laugh at our predicaments, life would be impossible indeed. For my money, Sir John Falstaff gets it. He's possibly the most human of his creations. He has learned the saving grace of being able chiefly to laugh at himself. Literature then can deepen our thinking by helping us to become more aware of our own values and world view. Personally, I don't think it matters much whether that worldview is dominated by the concept of God or man at the centre of things. You can be an essentialist or an existentialist for all it matters, believe in the existence of the many or ultimately the one spiritual force. What ultimately matters is that we are alive to the implications of the diverse beliefs that hold our world together. The ultimate goal is to live thoughtfully, de deliberately. All the outward business of our lives loses meaning if we never look at the foundations under all that busyness. Socrates believed that the unexamined life was not worth living. Literature and art can enrich our feelings, deepen our thoughts, and help us to see the context and shape in time of human experience. To me, 
This is the essential spiritual journey. It can show us exquisite truth and profound beauty. It is said that Orpheus could make mountains move with the sound of his lute. It's a powerful image. May our eyes and ears be ready for the message when it comes. Some closing words. I ask for daily bread, but not for wealth, lest I forget the poor. I ask for strength, but not for power, lest I despise the weak. I ask for wisdom, but not for learning, lest I scorn the simple. I ask for a clean name, but not for fame, lest I despise the lowly. I ask for peace of mind, but not for idle hours, lest I fail to hearken to the call of duty. Amen to that. Blessed be, and go in peace. <laughs>